morning, everybody. How we doing? Okay, uh, I have so much I want to talk about. Such little time. I got to be done by 11.30. Okay, everyone open your Bibles. Kidding. But not really. Not honestly, totally kidding. Okay, open your Bibles. Let's go to John 5. John 5, I got a lot of ground to cover. I'm excited and just going to be honest with you from the beginning. Tonight, and I told you this, nice. Where's Adam? Adam? No, two fists. There you go. Uh, hey, everyone say hi, balcony. Hi. Oh, okay, so Adam's the man. Balcony, thank you. Uh, tonight is going to feel a little bit more like a Bible study than a message because I've been assigned with a unique task, and I think the camp directors have done a great job. They want you to understand, and you just saw it in the video, something about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question. You can think through it. I'm sure that a number of you have heard messages on Jesus coming into the world as a baby, maybe the reason why he came. I'm sure you've heard a message about his death and potentially even his resurrection. But in many ways, there's not so much that's been discussed in a typical format, even at camp, on just his life and ministry. And we're going to look tonight at who Jesus was. And if you had to put a banner over tonight's message, it would be, who is the person of Jesus Christ? And here's what we're going to find in chapter 4. Jesus is going to interact with a woman at the well, and you know the story. And he's going to do, uh, he's going to follow a similar pattern. He's going to demonstrate his power and his omniscience. With a woman at the well, he's going to tell her everything about her because he knows everything. John 2.25 says that Jesus doesn't need anyone to testify concerning man because he already knows what is within man. You know what that means? Jesus doesn't need to get the deets on you from anybody. He already knows what is within your heart. He doesn't need to go through your text messages to find out what's going on. He knows your mind. And right now, everything in your life is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of God. And in John 4, he's going to tell this woman that he knows everything about her. You're, you're living with a man that's not your husband. You're committing adultery. And what's funny about it is this is the last person on earth Jesus would ever you know, the people would ever expect Jesus to interact with because she's a Samaritan woman and not just a Samaritan woman, a woman who sold her body for a place to stay. And that's the story. And he's going to say, you're looking for what you're seeking for in the wrong places. I am living water and I've come to give it to you. And the irony of it is that the people that you would have thought would have been the most rejecting of Jesus are going to receive Jesus. But here's the pattern we're going to look at primarily in chapters five and six. I want you to have your Bibles, and I want you to be looking there because we're really not going to turn anywhere else. And your head is hopefully going to be looking at the Scripture a lot tonight. There's kind of a threefold pattern in both chapter 5 and chapter 6. Here's what's going to happen. You ready? Jesus is going to demonstrate his power. It's going to raise some questions. And then he's going to do something else. He's then going to use that as a bridge to declare his identity, that he is God. And then we're going to see that the people he came to save are going to deny him. In chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's going to do the same thing over and over, and over again. He's going to demonstrate his power. He's going to declare his identity. And then he's going to be denied and rejected by the people he came to save. Okay? You ready? Okay, one thing to note, in John 3, actually turn back to John 3 for one second. I want to highlight something, and then we'll jump to chapter 5. My man. Okay, John 3. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees, and we're going to look here uh, tomorrow night and Thursday night. A ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for, you, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here's what Nicodemus is saying. Everybody here knows that you are doing a ton of miracles. Here's what you got to understand about the life and ministry of Jesus. He essentially eradicated all disease from the nation of Israel. Every single place he went, he was casting out demons. He was healing the blind, healing the sick, it says this in chapter 2, many saw the signs, plural, that he was performing. I'll give you a couple of references to write down. Matthew 9, 33, 
It says the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. What's that? His signs. He's not performing magic tricks. He is healing people, curing leprosy. Do you know what happened if you got leprosy? It was essentially a death sentence. You were sent to live away from your family forever until you died. What happens when you have leprosy is that you no longer feel anything in your skin, your nerves or anything. So you just claw yourself to death. And Jesus is going, hey, you're healed. Hey, you're healed. My son, my son, my son, he's already healed. Go back and you'll find that I healed him. And that's how Jesus is working. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist from prison sends messengers to Jesus and says, are you the Messiah? Are you the expected one? And here's how Jesus responds in Matthew 11:5. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Now here's what we're gonna see. In spite of everything that Jesus is doing, and first of all, let me remind you, this is a real story. This is real history. People that don't believe Jesus is God can't deny his miracles. It's in secular sources of history. Egyptian history, Josephus, who was a Jewish man who rejected God, they don't deny his miracles, and they don't know what to do with them, so they reject him. So, chapter five. Yep, yep. Okay, it says, so after these things, it's after chapter four, he's in Samaria for a couple days there. And so he moves. And then in, verse, in chapter five, it says, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, I've been there, a pool, it's still there, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In there lay a multitude. Multitude means how many? A lot, okay? Of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel, the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then stepped first, or after the stirring up of the water, stepped in and was made well from whatever disease was which they were afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. How many of you are under 38 years old? If you, you'd have to be like a super, super, super senior. Okay, when Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been in a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well. I want you to remind, I want to remind you that Jesus already knew every single thing about this man. He knew. The fact that Jesus knows everything about this man, the fact that Jesus knows everything about you is unspeakably precious. The man sitting there wasn't just one amongst a multitude, the Jesus Christ. Jesus knew him. And do you know what we're going to find? It says that he's moved with compassion over and over and over again, nine times in John's gospel, it's going to describe Jesus this way. He is moved with compassion. You know, what it says, you know what it means when it says he's moved? The wording there literally means that his guts are being churned. Because it's not just like, I feel bad, I have sympathy. It means Jesus looks at people and he's going, I have compassion on that man. So Jesus doesn't just know people perfectly. He is easily moved by what they're going through. So Jesus walks up to this guy and says, do you want to be healed? And then the sick man responded in verse 7, says, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming up, another steps down before me. And Jesus says, okay, enough with this. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. What's the next word in verse 9? Immediately. You know why? Because no progression, no rehab is necessary when God speaks authoritatively and with power. This is a man who hasn't moved in 38 years. And it says immediately the man was healed. And he heals a man. And the result is not a ginger walk. He's fully healed. But we look, and there's a minor chord that is struck at the end of verse 9. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees, they're going to struggle with this because the Pharisees created all these different legislation and all these different rules to try to create an extra religious system so that they might earn the favor of God. And they would have known exactly who this lame man was. And it's not like they see the guy and they go, bro, what, what should we name our lame man? William. William. Okay, no more names. That's, I'm sticking with William. Now, it's not like they go up to William and go, William, what happened, man? This is amazing. You've been there for, how old am I? I'm 48. You've been there, and I was 10 when you, okay, so you're 38 years, you haven't moved. How did this happen? Who did this? This is awesome. They go, who the heck did this? And Why? Are you carrying your mat? They're ticked. This is so backwards, right? So backwards. They're ticked because he's carrying his pallet 
on the Sabbath. And here's his response in verse 11. He who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, verse 13, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. After Jesus found him in that temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, if you're confused about this, uh, these different infirmities are not always because of sin. In John 9, we're going to see this, that type of different idea. But here, it actually refers to something that this man did. And so Jesus says, sin no more so that nothing worse happens to you. We can talk about this on Thursday if you want during free time. The man who went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, not because he's healing people, but because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them and said, my father is working until now, and I have been working. He's about to make a defense. Remember, we're following the flow here. He's going to demonstrate his power, then he's going to declare his deity. If you don't know what the word deity is, it means that he is going to say, I am God in the flesh. At this point, Jesus already proved he's Lord over demons, he's Lord over diseases, he's Lord over creation, and now we are going to see that he is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was their holy day. And in this chapter, we are going to see the most clear declaration of the identity of Jesus Christ from Jesus Christ. He says, I created all things, in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. You know what he's saying to these Jewish men? He's saying, listen, you don't understand. The Sabbath wasn't because God was tired. The Sabbath was something that was implemented for you. It's not like Jesus or God himself was resting because he was exhausted. He did this for you because we're always working. We're always doing something. God never takes a day off. He's never been on sabbatical, and neither am I. And they're looking at him going, are you saying that you think you're God? And over the next 30 verses, here's what Jesus is going to say. You better believe it. How do they respond? Listen to verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only violated the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father making himself, what's that next word in your Bible? Equal with God. There was never any question in the minds of the Jewish people who Jesus claimed to be. He calls God his own father, it says. He thinks he's God. He thinks he's equal with God. They hate Jesus because he makes unambiguous claims to his identity. C.S. Lewis, in a memorable way in his book, Mere Christianity, says this quote, and it might be familiar to you in part. He says this, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option available to us. You live in a world where people go, yeah, Jesus was awesome. He was a great teacher, but he's not God. No, Jesus cannot be a great teacher and not be who he says he is. He's either insane or he is God. I remember having a conversation with a girl uh, she was uh, a member of the Islamic faith in uh, Albania. And I just walked this through with her. She, because they believed Jesus was a prophet, and I just said, so do you think he's a, a lunatic? She goes, no, well, his, 
His miracles prove that he wasn't a lunatic. Do you, do you think he's a liar? No, I don't think he's a liar. Then what does that mean? It was like the, the, the light bulb turned on. He says, it must be God. That girl got kicked out of her family and has been living with a different family for the last nine years because she understood something. Jesus can't just be a good dude. He can't just be a good teacher because he makes unambiguous claims to his identity. He's God. Now, I love the way that J.I. Packer describes this in the book, Knowing God. Some of you asked me about this in our Q&A. He said, when God became man, he was not God minus some attributes. Instead, when the apostle Paul speaks of God the Son emptying himself and becoming poor, what he has in mind is that God laid aside, is not that God laid aside divine power, but that God laid aside glory and dignity. So that when Jesus came, it wasn't like he was a shell of what he once was. It says in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself and he stripped himself of his robes of glory to become a carpenter. Verse 23, Jesus is about to drop a bomb. He says this, well, we'll start in verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, for he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Jesus tells a group of people who are all about honoring God, you've never honored God a single second if you haven't honored the one that he sent, me. This is true of every single religion today. Do you understand this? Their relationship with God is based upon their worship of who? Jesus Christ. Do they revere him as God? Do they worship Jesus? Do they view him as the truth? You cannot honor God the Father if you do not honor the Son. And it says whoever doesn't believe that the Son is God will be judged by God. Wait, but who will he be judged by or who will we be judged by? I think culturally we think of God, the Father is the one who judges people and the Son is just the nice guy persuading his dad to be gracious and merciful. Verse 26 and 27. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he, go, he, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. That's the doctrine of aseity, Ah, say, from himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus is the judge of the universe. Jesus declares, if you don't honor me, you don't honor the Father, and you will stand before me in judgment. In Acts 17, 31, it says this, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he will give assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you know who is the judge of the universe? Jesus Christ. So the judge must be a human, and what we know to be true is that God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but so that the whole world might be what? Saved through him. On his first advent, when Jesus first comes, he doesn't come as one who's seeking to judge. He's coming, Luke 19.10, as one who seeks to save but he's never so wrapped up in his, in his, you can't ever get so wrapped up in this idea that Jesus only saves that you forget that he is also the judge of the universe and you will give an account for rejecting him. Do you understand this so far? Are we tracking? Okay. Let's move on to verse 36. Jesus is about to continue to declare different testimonies regarding his Identity, okay? So he's already demonstrated and now he's declaring it and he's talking about who he is and he's gonna say you have multiple witnesses. In verses 33 through 35, he's gonna say the testimony of John the Baptist tells you who I am. And I told you this is a Bible study, but I wanna tell you how you should study the Bible. It's by looking at the meaning of the text because that's where the power of God is in understanding the Bible, how it was meant to be understood. 
He says, the power and the witness of John the Baptist. And he goes, if you don't believe John the Baptist, verse 36, believe in the works. He says in verse 36, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given to me to accomplish. The very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. He's saying, if you don't believe me for my words, believe me for my works. These signs that I'm doing authenticate my identity. They're not miracles, they're called signs because they're significantly pointing for a single purpose towards something. Every single miracle that Jesus does is so that you might understand something about his identity. And he's gonna say, if you don't believe John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament preacher, if you don't believe him, this man, you are, you are thrilled by him. John the Baptist was commanding thousands and thousands of people. They were following him all around. And then John the Baptist, all of a sudden, after a six-month ministry goes, stop following me. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you don't believe John the Baptist, believe my works. They testify about me. We read this in John 3. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. So many signs. John 7, 31, you can write this down. Yet many people believed in him. When Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? John 10, 25, the works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. Those are the signs. John 12, 37, though he performed, listen to this, this is so sad. Though he performed so many signs, they were not believing in him. Jesus is doing miracle after miracle and the people reject him and reject him and reject him. John 21, 25, the last verse of this gospel. Now there are many other signs that Jesus did. Watch this. Were every one of them to be written, I love this. He says, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is a monumental, massive testimony to the power and authority of Jesus who else has this power? No one. And Jesus is looking at them going, are you serious? On a daily basis, I heal leprosy and heal the blind and give hearing to the deaf. I make food. Miracle after miracle, believe them. He goes, you don't believe John the Baptist. You don't believe my works. Verse 37 and 38, please believe the Father he has sent me. And then he's going to say in verse 39, if you don't believe any of those, the strongest testimony available to you is not even the miracles or the signs that I'm doing. You know what the strongest testimony that Jesus provides? The testimony of God's word. We talked about this last night. He's saying, you know God's word so well. How can you not believe I'm God? Open it up and read. Every page points to Jesus Christ. And you reject me. You reject me. Verse 40, what's the response? You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. This is a foundational doctrine in the Bible. The unwillingness to believe the truth even when faced with it. A lack of faith is never because of a lack of evidence. It is never due to God choosing people for hell or insufficient provision of testimony. All of the responsibility lies on those who refuse to believe God. Chapter six. We tracking? Yep, yep. Okay. After these things, Jesus went up to the other side of, the Ga of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd uh, followed him because they saw the signs. Why are they following him? They saw the signs. They don't love God. They use God. Do something for us, which he was performing on all those who were sick. And then Jesus went up to the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. Now pause. This is just something that you scan over, but we know from chapter five that there was a previous feast that Jesus was at. And in chapter six, now it says sometime later, which here's what we know, that at least six months have passed. Why is that necessary? Why is that cool for us? It's because the Bible is including necessary detail for you to know that this is actual history. 
Why is verse four included? Well, once you know six months have passed and the same thing's about to happen in chapter six. He's gonna demonstrate his power so he can declare his identity and he's gonna plead with the people, but they're gonna deny and reject him, okay? This is the only miracle that is recorded in all four gospels. And even though it is the most well-known miracle, it is the most heartbreaking. Verse five, therefore Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? There's a large crowd following him. There is no cultural equivalent to the popularity that Jesus had at this time. He was a sensation. Understand this, that this is why you can't just remove Jesus. And Acts is going to say, this wasn't done in a corner. I mean, that even when the apostles are preaching in different countries before Romans, they're saying every single person on planet earth knows who Jesus Christ was. And every single person knows they slaughtered him. This wasn't done in a corner. It says the multitudes, the crowds are following him. When Jesus is walking around, he's walking around with 20,000 people. The Staples Center, Crypto Arena, I guess now. He's walking around with multitudes. His popularity is staggering. In Matthew 14, it says that Jesus took the whole day at this account. In the other testimony of the same story, he took the whole day healing the sick. The feeding here is not the only miracle. He goes into a crowd of 20,000 people, and here's what he's doing. Healed. Healed. What's your name? Sweet. You're healed. I care about you. I have compassion on you. I know your name. I love you, and you're healed. I know you. I've seen you there. I know you've been struggling with this. You're healed. I know you. I know this. You're healed. Jesus is doing what Jesus does. His heart is moved with compassion towards these people. Mark's gospel says, he did this because he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus says, where are we in verse five to buy bread so that we may eat? This he was saying to test them for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Now I want, to th- I want you to think with me that Philip is about to respond. That's one of Jesus's main disciples, one of his closest friends. You know, I had a lead, lead team here when I was a camp director. Those are the main 15 people that I work with during the summer. This is different. This is at the end of a three-year ministry. This isn't after the end of a three-month summer. It's a three-year ministry, and Jesus going, man, there's a bunch of people here. How are we going to feed them? You would expect that Philip would go, are you serious? You're Jesus, the Son of God. Make it happen. What do you want? Double-double? Lettuce and ketchup only? Come on. Fries? Animal style? Are you kidding? Animal style is gross. Okay, here's what he's going to do. He doesn't respond. Kidding, kidding, kidding. Get saved. Uh, He's going to say this. Philip doesn't say, Jesus You know exactly how you're going to feed them. You have power that is unlimited. Now, here's Philip's response. Verse 7. 200 denarii, that's 200 days of work, worth of bread. 200 denarii worth of bread. He's going to say 50,000 bucks. is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive just a little bit. Then Andrew comes up, Simon Peter's brother in verse eight, and says, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now pause. Maybe you've heard a story about how Andrew like brought all that he could and you know, he just trusted that God would use the rest. This isn't a story about great faith. Look at the next line. He says this, but what are we gonna do for so many people? This isn't gonna matter anything. Here's my Ritz crackers and some Swedish fish, but what's that gonna do? Nothing. It's not like he comes and says, God, here's two crackers and a couple of loaves of chicken. Loaves of chicken? <laughs> Trader Joe's, you can find it there. He doesn't come up and say, but I know you can do all things. He says, what are we possibly gonna do with this? They don't get it. The disciples that are with Jesus the most, they don't get it. Why is Jesus doing it? It says in verse six that he's testing them. He's asking them, how are we gonna feed so many people? Verse six, this he was saying to test them for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Why does he test them? Why is Jesus doing this? It's because Jesus is cementing and solidifying that this is an impossible situation. There's 20,000 people here and you're telling me we have some crackers and some fish. 
And they're going to go, yes. So this is impossible on human terms. The disciples respond, yes. And Jesus is going to respond and say, this is exactly where I operate. When you think and when you understand that no mere mortal could solve this problem, Jesus is leading them to the impossible because that is where his glory shines. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, verse 10. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. What's the response in verse 15? Jesus perceiving that, watch this, they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. If Jesus was a guy that wanted to be popular, this was the perfect opportunity. They were waiting for a Messiah. You see that in verse 14. They're waiting. Surely this is the guy. But they weren't waiting for a Messiah that would come and suffer and die. They were waiting for a Messiah that would free them from the political and oppressive reign of Rome, not the oppressive bondage of their own sin. They wanted someone to deliver them from political tyranny and here, in their own mind, the perfect candidate appears on the scene. A man of power, unfathomable power. He heals and he feeds. This is the king that they want. But Jesus wants nothing to do with their plan. He is not after earthly power or earthly dominion in his first coming. They were captivated by a Messiah of their imagination. They were looking for a kingdom of man and Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God. They wanted to use God for his gifts and for his stuff, not because they wanted to serve him as Lord. Jesus is doing more than feeding people with natural bread. He is using something from the natural world and he's about to tell them something about the spiritual world. So Jesus is gonna withdraw because he, he doesn't love crowds. You know, you live in a context where you think that ministerial success is measured by how many people show up to something. Does that make sense? Tracking? Jesus sees a crowd, and you know what he does? Gets concerned. Because he goes, surely the people are here for the wrong reason. There's so many churches that you can look at and go, there's a ton of people there. And you think, this, might, this must be awesome to God. No, sometimes a bunch of people there because they're never confronted with the reality of their sin and it's all a show. Jesus doesn't care about shows. He cares about your soul. And so he's going to withdraw. Now, in the middle of this section about feeding and Jesus is going to say in just a moment the first I am statement, I want to read this through and we'll circle back to it at the end. Verse 15, or 16, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. For they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day, he just controls the wind of the sea. Not enough time, but awesome. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate and the bread, ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in the small boats and came to the Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Here's what just happened. Jesus says, hey, you're about to make me king. I don't want anything to do with that. You guys are after the wrong thing. I'm here to satisfy your soul and heal your soul, and all you want is my stuff, and you want me to be king because you just don't like Rome. And here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get in this, I'm gonna walk, 
uh, across the sea. I'm going to help my disciples out. And they're the next day looking for him. So here's what happens. 20,000 people hop in little fishing boats and cross eight miles the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This would have looked like a straight-up war. Okay? You need to understand thousands and thousands of boats. Thousands. And what are they doing? They're looking for Jesus Christ. Okay? They're looking for him. And they say, when did you get here? And watch this. This is awesome. Jesus is never answering the question that, they, that he was asked. He's always getting to what they're really wanting. Verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You saw the miracle, you enjoyed the benefit of it, and that's why you chase me and want me to be king. You don't want to be a part of my kingdom. You just want another free breakfast. Verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. He's saying don't work for the food that perishes. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus understood that the battle for bread was a real thing for these people. But here's what he's saying. Don't spend your life on the temporal. Don't spend your life merely setting the table and consuming what's placed on it. Spend your life and pour your soul into that which will last for all of eternity. You've ignored the signs and you want a morning meal, but I am here to offer you myself. Don't live for retirement. Live for eternity. Live for something that will never perish. They don't get it. Verse 28. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. You want to know how to please God? You believe in him whom he has sent. Now look at these people. They're unbelievable. The previous day, Jesus just fed 20,000 people with some crackers and some fish. And he's saying, believe in me, I'm God. And here's how they respond. You want us to believe you're God? Do another sign for us. Come on, give us your best shot. We're not that gullible. Okay, we've seen you heal thousands and thousands of people and he just fed everybody, but do something else. Verse 30, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? For what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, you have a bunch of stuff that you put in your belly that satisfies you for a little bit. I'm about to give you something that'll satisfy your soul for all of eternity. In John 4, he tells the woman at the well, you're gonna drink this water. You know what's gonna happen tomorrow? You're gonna be parched. I can give you living water. And you know what he's telling these people? I can make you breakfast. Breakfast. But you know what I can do that nobody else can do? I can satisfy the deepest longings and hunger of your soul. For the bread of God, verse 33, is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. This is the first of the seven I am statements in John's gospel, and they are obvious declarations to the deity of Jesus Christ. I am the good shepherd, I am the vine, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the resurrection and the life. They knew exactly who he was claiming to be. Exactly. He presents this powerful claim that he is God and that he has come down from heaven. Jesus repeats this for clarity so nobody is confused. Verse 32, my father is in heaven. Jews would have never called God their father, ever, ever. That's a New Testament thing. They would have never, ever called God their father. 
32, my father in heaven. Verse 38, I have come from heaven. Verse 41, the Jews grumbled because he said he came out of heaven. Verse 42, out of heaven. Verse 50, out of heaven. Verse 51, down from heaven. Jesus is saying, I am God. 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 I'm not a great teacher. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not some kind of miracle worker. I am God. And he says, not only that, I provide what you are searching for. You have starved souls. I like what John Piper says. He says, this doesn't mean, when Jesus tells us that he's the bread of life, that our souls will never hunger or thirst again. It means now we know what it's for. Now we know where to turn. Now we know what to drink and what to eat. We come to Jesus. He is what we are made for. Jesus is the all-satisfying end of every single longing. And he's saying, come to me, find satisfaction in me. And it says he gives this bread to who? Who does Jesus give this bread to? Verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Jesus saying, do you want this bread? Do you want this bread? Do you want something that will satisfy your soul? You don't have to save anything. You don't have to earn and earn and earn and save and save. You want this bread? Isaiah 55, come now, eat bread, drink wine without cost. How? Because it's already been paid for. He says, if you want this bread, you believe in who I am. He's gonna say, the Father sent me. The Father sent me. Verses 38, 39, and 40. The Father sent me. Now, I want you to look at verse 44 because if you read it, I don't want you to get confused. He says this, no one come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What does no man mean? It means no man. It means absolutely zero persons, no exceptions. It's a universal negative. No man can what? No man comes to Jesus Christ unless the Father draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is the same thing Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus. Salvation is entirely a work of God. Entirely a work of God. Maybe you've wondered in the past, uh, how do I read that in the Bible where it says people are predestined or elected, or if I'm supposed to do this, or I'm whatever your thought is, listen to the plain reading of Scripture, Okay. I'm going to tell you two equally important and two crystal clear realities in the Bible. I don't know how you could possibly get around this. God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Absolutely. You would have to just fundamentally ignore what's right in front of you. No man comes and believes in Jesus Christ unless the Father draws him. Jesus isn't saving people that are kind of sick. He's resurrecting dead people in Ephesians 2. Okay, we're going to talk about this more tomorrow. You didn't remove the blinders from your eyes. You didn't remove the wax from your ears. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, God the Father has given you to the Son, and he knew he would give you to the Son. Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Think about that. Now, it says that this is for the, the bread, is for the one that the Father draws. Now, here's the hard part, and this is where the, the bickering starts, and you're ready for like a four-hour conversation, all right, right? How do I know if I'm one of the ones that the Father has drawn, right? Am I wrong? Tracking? Okay. How do I know if I'm one of the chosen? How do I know if I'm one of the elect? The easiest answer in the world, okay? It's back in verse 35. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You know you are of the Son if you come to the Son. Do you want to know if you're one of the elect? Well, listen, what John's going to say over and over again, if you want to know if you're one of the ones that Father has drawn, I don't think I'm even, I'm not even trying to preach a doctrine. I'm reading what's right in front of you. You don't have to study theology to, miss, to, to, to understand this. God is the one that draws people to Christ, but Christ is the one casting the net, and the people that are drawn by the Father are the ones that come to the Son. He says, listen, listen, listen to the words of Scripture. Do you want to know? 
If you're one of the ones drawn by the Father, John 3, 16, 3, 15, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. John 3, 16, whoever, whoever means anybody and everybody who comes and believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 18, whoever believes, John 3, 36, whoever believes, John 5, 24, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Whoever, John 6, 35, believes in me shall never thirst. John 6, 37, whoever comes to me. John 6, 47, whoever believes in me. John 6, 58, whoever feeds on me. John 7, 38, whoever believes in me. John 12, 46, whoever believes in me. Make sense? Yeah? You want to know if the Father is drawing you? Is if in your heart you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And the evidence is there. And Jesus is going to say, it's not like I'm asking you to leave reason at the door. All of the scripture points to one person. All of the signs point to one person. And your soul testifies within you, this is the Son of God. What do those who come to Jesus Christ receive? Verse 40, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Now, I just want to summarize the end because I'm running out of time. What they're going to do is he's going to say, whoever, he says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father sent me and I, li- and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will also live because of me. What is Jesus saying? He's not talking about cannibalism. He never rambles. He never monologues. Everything he says is on purpose and for purpose. He's saying, how can you possibly get eternal life into your mortal bodies? And he's going to say, you need to be united with me in the way that you do that is you need to believe that I am the substitute for your sins, that I am the son of God, and you will be united with me. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood is not some sort of weird figurative thing, or weird literal thing. It's a figurative way of Jesus saying, you need to believe in me, you need to look to me, you need to receive me, you need to come to me. Believing in Jesus as the living bread is not enough. You need to view him as the dying blood. This doesn't sit well with the Jews. They go, you're telling me that unless we believe in you, that you're going to satisfy our souls and your death is going to satisfy the payment for our sins, that we don't know you, they leave. And Jesus is going to turn... In verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples... This isn't random people. These were people that were committed followers... And they were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go also? Do you? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is going to say, so many people come and they reject me. They reject me. And the heartbreak here is obvious. Jesus isn't like, "Ah, I don't care if they reject me. I'm going to say my thing. If it's not for them, it's not for them. See if I care. Let me just read this, and I'll be done. I hope you grasp the sorrow of Jesus. In Isaiah 16, 9, it talks about how God will water Moab with his tears. Why is God heartbroken in the Bible? Over and over and over again, why is God heartbroken in the Bible? Because of the people's indifference and apathy towards the truth. Isaiah twenty-two twelve says, God is weeping and mourning because they don't follow him. Jeremiah 9, 14, 31, the tears of God over those who reject him. In Luke 19, 41, Jesus approached Jerusalem at the same time. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to look at the city and he's going to weep over it because the one that came to bring them peace has been rejected. 
And he's giving them sign and sign and sign. And he's saying, don't just believe my signs. Believe my words. I am the son of God. He's saying, don't you understand? I satisfy souls and I cleanse your conscience. I am the only one that can offer you forgiveness and eternal life. And they go, see ya. And Jesus looks at the 12 and goes, are you gonna leave too? And Peter's response is one of the most profound responses in all the scripture. We have come to believe that you are the Christ, the son of God. Have you ever said that from an honest heart? I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Holy One, the Son of God. It's not because of a lack of evidence. Jesus says you're unwilling. In John 3, you know why? Because you love the darkness more than you love the light. You refuse to come to me so that you might have life. If you have, I don't want to ever wait till gospel night. Jesus is God. And he says, why don't you believe in me? Come to me and receive life. Don't get lost. Throw yourself upon mercy. You don't have to understand how a car works to drive it. But you know what you need to understand about the gospel? Not every page of scripture, one central theme Jesus Christ is the only Savior, the only substitute, and the only satisfier for your soul. Do you believe it? Let me pray. God, we thank you for your mercy. Lord, this was a, a difficult endeavor to cover so much ground, and this has been a Bible study in ways. And I'm sure there are a number of questions. God, you draw people to your son and the way that we know that you're drawing us is if we go, I want to believe. We don't need perfect faith. We just need trusting, imperfect faith because we have a perfect savior. So Lord, we confess with the man I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. For the number of people here that don't believe in you as Lord, would you help them to do so? You are the Christ. You're the only Messiah, the only Savior, and the only satisfier of our soul. You are true food, true bread, true and living water. We pray this in your name and all God's people said.